Blog Talk Radio. So, I get to do all the talking tonight. Got Beth's over here, uh, working off of, a, you know, having little to no voice. And, yeah, so it's been a very crazy, busy last couple of weeks, which is part of the reason why Beth has basically no voice tonight. So I get to do all the talking. You can see her hand every once in a while. She's going to be watching the uh, the chat, which is um, something new for her. She normally, that's normally my thing. So she's going to be doing the chat thing tonight, trying to do, oh, I, I see she's doing something. I see a Hunter Richmond on the, the screen, but I can't quite read it. So uh, she will keep me informed about what's going on here as we uh, move through this evening. Now, uh, before we do dive into uh, the uh, the main event for this evening, if you will, uh, as you know, we are going to be talking about haunted whales tonight, and not the marine mammals. We were talking about that uh, that fourth country that makes up the uh, the UK as we know it today. Of course, you got England, you got Scotland, you got Northern Ireland, and we have whales. So that is what we're going to be focusing on. Now, whales is kind of a you know very unique. Uh, unique little corner of the country there. And so this is kind of excited to be able to dive into it. But again, before we do dive right into it, um, a few things I want to go ahead and kind of cover, kind of mention. Uh, and first thing right off the top is, um, unfortunately, um, you know, I hate to start things kind of on a down note, but I do have to uh, mention to everybody, and maybe you saw it on our Facebook page uh, a couple of weeks ago, is that our uh, our good friend and uh, loyal follower and, uh, you know, tuned into a lot of the shows and is, was a great friend of uh, everybody in the, uh, like, Central Virginia paranormal community. Uh, unfortunately, Glenn Morgan, he did pass away uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was the, actually the day after our last show. So uh, we are very much going to miss Glenn, a wonderful guy. Um, and... Uh, uh, I know we're missing him. Um, a lot of our friends are missing him. His family's going to be missing him. And uh, so just wanted to take a moment to uh, acknowledge Glenn. And, uh, you know, we're hopeful that he is, uh, that he is uh, found the rest that he so uh, so well deserves. He's a wonderful guy, was a wonderful guy, and we're going to miss him. So uh, well, cheers to Glenn. So, but with that said, um, we are going to go ahead and dedicate this episode in his memory because uh, he did love tuning in and, and uh, catching our stories. So uh, we'll go ahead. We're going to dedicate this in his memory. And, um, yeah, I've got a, a, a lot of other things have happened in those last couple of weeks as well. So um, uh, now this past weekend, the weekend before, we went to uh, uh, Richmond Galaxy Con. Had a great time there. If, uh, if you've never been to um, – Richmond Galaxy Con, it's an annual event, and they already have their uh, next one lined up for the uh, end of March next year in 2023. So um, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of fandom type stuff there, including a little bit of stuff for the paranormal community. So, if, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're already looking forward to that and uh, had a very good time there a couple weeks ago. And then this past week, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, we got signatures galore. So, uh, yeah. So all kinds of all kinds of good stuff got signed. Humperdinck, Humperdinck from uh, from uh, the, the Princess Bride, yes. So, but yes, had a wonderful time there. Um, and uh, then 
had a very busy week this past week, had some meetings and other little events and whatnot, but this past weekend was a very big weekend for us as well, as the Churchill Irish Festival finally came back after a two-year involuntary hiatus. So it was the first festival that they've had in three years, and we, it's, uh, basically it's right on our front doorstep. We are very happy to have them back out there again and uh, be able to get out there ourselves. We had tents out there this weekend. Um, had a great time out there, and uh, uh, part of the reason you know that Beth has uh, lost her voice, and I think you know, I I sound a little a little off myself, but um, is uh, you know we just talked to so many people and had a great time uh, meeting everybody. And oh, of course, I can't forget Friday night was um, this also this weekend was the first annual RBA Burlesque Festival, which we were sponsors of, and we went out there on Friday night and had a great time. Uh, sharing and having a good time. So, yes, big, big weekend this past weekend. Um, we're in recovery mode. That's a little more so than myself. And uh, But, yeah, so that is where we have been uh, these last couple of weeks. It's just been uh, it's been very crazy and had our ups and downs, and uh, we are very glad to be able to be back here with you this evening. So with that, I do have my script. And you have the pleasure of listening to me as I have a few drinks and try to pronounce Welsh words tonight. So we are going to try and get through this as well as we can. And uh, I hope you I hope you enjoy. I know I'm going to enjoy it. If nothing else, I'm going to enjoy a beverage. Uh, so cheers to you all. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in with us here tonight. And, uh, yeah, our first stop this evening is going to be a place called Skier House, and it's in the, uh, just, it's by the town of Port Call. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's basically how it kind of phonetically looks here. So we're going to go with that. Now, this uh, Skier House, it looms high over the Bristol Channel, and it was constructed roughly 900 years ago as a grange of Neath Abbey, which was a Cistercian order. The house would have been some distance away from the abbey and was originally surrounded by farms. And over the generations, the farms have gradually been replaced with golf courses and a nature reserve, but Skier House does remain looming bare over the Bristol Channel. You got to come? Yep, I got to visit. And so, now, after the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, if you know your uh, Tudor-era history, you will know that... Um, Henry had a little bit of a break with the church, we'll call it that. And uh, the estates changed hands numerous times, but remained as a refuge for rebel monks. This act of disobedience, when discovered, usually resulted in the execution of the offending monks. And uh, most notable was a man named Jenkin Tuberville, a devout Roman Catholic, who was accused of promoting the old religion. He was tortured to death, leaving this world in excruciating pain in 1597. In 1679, St. Philip Evans was hung, drawn, and quartered in Cardiff after being arrested at Skier. In the 18th century, it fell into the possession of its most famous landlord, Isaac Williams, whose daughter swiftly passed into legend as the original maid of Skier. She was young and beautiful and fell madly in love with a local harpist and carpenter named Thomas Evans. 
However, Isaac, who by all accounts ruled both his estate and his family with an iron fist, sternly forbade the prospective match due to Evans not being a man of means and imprisoned his daughter in the house until she reluctantly agreed to marry a wealthy local by the name of Thomas Kirkhouse instead. It was a marriage of convenience, not unusual in Wales at the time, with both families standing to benefit financially from the union. However, even after her sham marriage, Elizabeth still pined for Thomas, so much so that she eventually fell ill and died in 1776 at a tragically young age. Some versions of the story claim that she died of a broken heart, others that she starved herself to death. Whatever the circumstances of her untimely demise, it's said that Elizabeth's ghost could often be seen grazing forlornly out of an upstairs window at Skier House, still waiting in vain for her one true love. For a time, the sightings were so frequent that many locals refused to believe that Elizabeth was even dead. Today, when entering the mansion, it is said a wave of pain, torment, and bloody torture washes over you so strongly it could bring you to your knees. For his part, the spurned Thomas Evans is credited with writing a folk song in her honor called E Perch O Score, which he performed until his own death many years later. The story was later immortalized in the well-known Victorian novelist R.D. Blackmore, who spent much of his childhood in the nearby village of Nottage and later wrote a novel called The Maid of Skier. However, the story he wrote bears little resemblance to the popular romance. The tragedy of his daughter's early death isn't the only grim haunting attributed to Isaac Williams at Scarehouse. But first, a little more background. During the Industrial Revolution, the Bristol Channel was one of the busiest waterways in the world, carrying a stream, a steady stream of vessels between Britain and the continent. It was also one of the most perilous. As if the strong currents and ever-shifting hidden sandbanks were not enough, Skier Point, also known as Black Rocks, could literally tear ships to pieces. At that time, smuggling and looting were considered legitimate enterprises, and shipwrecks—excuse me—shipwrecks were so common in the area that they were seldom investigated in detail. Local landowners routinely claimed right of the wreck, whereby they were legally free to salvage whatever lost cargo washed up on their property. Lost. Some less scrupulous locals were said to engage in the sinister practice of wrecking, which was deliberately luring ships to their doom. Wrecking has gone by many names over the years. I prefer to think of it almost like a form of land piracy, if you will. But anyways, um, now this was done at night by tying lanterns to cattle or grazing sheep and leading them along the seafront. From a distance, especially to unfamiliar eyes in bad weather, the lights would look like those of ships lying safely at anchor. A cautionary tale is often, to, often told is that of the Welsh wrecker who helped lure a passing ship onto the rocks, killing everyone on board. While he busied himself looting the ship's cargo, the bodies of the unfortunate passengers and crew were brought ashore for burial. Only then did the wrecker see the body of his own son, who was returning home unexpectedly after a long voyage. A pivotal event, not just in the history of Skier, but in the practice of wrecking as a whole, occurred on December 17, 1753, when the French merchant ship Le Vanquier was en route from Lisbon to Le Havre, 
carrying a load of decadent goods. Chests full of oranges, planks of Brazilian hardwood, cases of figs, and other luxuries were on board when the ship was blown into Skier Point. It is generally held that Isaac Williams and his cohorts were responsible for the wrecking. No sooner had the ship hit the rocks than impoverished, impoverished locals and respected nobility uh, alike descended on the wreck like vultures and plundered its goods. All while numerous sailors clung to life, desperate for help. However, the locals could not be bothered with saving the sailors while there were goods to loot. They stole her cargo, and as the sailors succumbed to the condition, they rifled through the pockets of the deceased sailors. When there was nothing left but the splintered ruins of the ship, they set it afire to recover the iron nails that had once held it together. It's said that the orangery at nearby Margam Abbey was supposedly built to house orange trees recovered from the doomed ship. Due to the delicate diplomatic relations between Britain and France at the time, the fate of Le Vanquier was treated as a serious international incident. And in the aftermath, no less than 17 people were arrested, including Isaac Williams, who was then an influential local magistrate. In questions, he claimed to have stored goods from the wreck, from the wreck found in the cellar of Steerhouse for safekeeping. Remarkably, he never went to trial, but his reputation was tainted forever, and he died a ruined man. Some have said that the spirit of the Vanquier captain lingers in the cellar of Steerhouse. He followed the goods that were unceremoniously and disrespectfully looted from his ship and his own body at Steer Point. Of those that did go to trial for the looting of the Levanquer, one man wasn't so lucky and was hanged by the crown to set an example to others. In the years since wrecking was abolished, countless witnesses claimed to have seen ghostly ships off Skier. Also frequently spotted is a solitary light hovering over Skier Point, just like the lights that were used by wreckers to lure ships to an early grave. Though the fate of the Vanquier effectively put an end to the grisly practice of wrecking, the tragedies kept on coming. Perhaps the most famous incident of all is the Mumbles Lifeboat Disaster, which occurred on April 23, 1947, when the 7,200-ton U.S. Liberty ship Sam Tampa, carrying a cargo of crude oil, ran aground on Spear Point during a storm with the loss of all 39 passengers and crew. In the terrible conditions, a lifeboat, the Edward Prince of Wales, was dispatched from nearby Mumble, but the awful conditions made rescue impossible. Witnesses later said uh, the sea around Steer Point was black like molten tar. The lifeboat was smashed against the rocks, killing all eight volunteers. The crews of both vessels were buried at nearby Nottage Cemetery. The estate rested in the hands of the Margam estate until 1941 when it became completely abandoned. During this era, the South Wing collapsed and its already dismal state became abysmal. By this time, Skier House had been abandoned for many years and lay derelict. It was officially declared an unsafe building in the late 1970s. Twenty years later, an expansive refurbishment project was undertaken to restore the house to something approaching its former glory. It is still standing today, a living testament to its own macabre past. Since 2003, it has been privately owned, but its current owners rarely welcome curious visitors. However, much of the surrounding land does remain public property, and a footpath runs alongside the house down to the dunes, which line the beach. 
It is there that if you are very lucky, you may catch a glimpse of the ghostly wreckers' lights or even a passing ghost ship today. Hmm. Hydration. Hmm. Or Guinness for strength, if you will. Any questions or comments? No, we just want comments from the Ah, yes. The kitty cat is the true, true uh, star of the show. I am, I get my, I know my role. It's okay. <laughs> uh, we're actually not going to be going too far from Scare Point. Um, the, uh, aside from the apparitions that continue to wander the ground with gear, screeches and shrieks can be heard echoing across the landscape. Although you may attribute these to the anguish of Elizabeth Williams, there is an idea that uh, Kihari, Taking a shot in the dark with that, Kihari could be responsible. It roughly translates to a thing of mere flesh and bone. The cries of this creature are considered portents of doom. If you hear it, you would be wise to take shelter. Those who come face to face with the Kihari are in, uh, in for a horrifying sight. The creature could either be male or female, and is described as having wild, disheveled hair pointed black teeth, and long, withered arms. Death was said to follow in its wake, though rarely for the witness of himself. Usually a close friend or acquaintance would be claimed instead. Floating lights are said to accompany the uh, Kiri, and as we noted before, many floating balls of light have been spotted at Skir. These lights could also be the work of the candle court, or the corpse candles. These disembodied lights are said to predict death. Appearing as a single light or in clusters, their size and brightness are relative to the age of the victim that it is uh, assumed that it's returning to the death of. If the doomed person was female, the light would have a white hue. If male, it would be red. Intense blue indicated an infant. And two white lights of varying size indicated a mother and her unborn child. Sometimes grinning skulls or even the features of the victim could be seen in their shimmering light. Again, the phenomena is especially prominent in coastal areas and often is said to be experienced in conjunction with the awful whales of the Kiri. When seen on open ground, the candle corpse are said to follow the exact route of the victim's funeral possession, which intriguingly ties in neatly with yet another popular legend in Skier. One night early in the 19th century, a local man was returning home from work. His path took him along the beach, and glancing out at Skier Point, uh, the submerged ranks of sharp rocks jutting up from the seabed just off the coast, he saw the shimmering wreck of a huge ship. As he watched, a small group of translucent figures waded out to the vessel and carried something ashore. The shocked man couldn't see what the object was, but guessing from its size and shape that it was a coffin. Fascinated, he followed the ghostly procession into town where, to his horror, it stopped outside his own house and vanished. A week later, a vessel was indeed wrapped off the coast of Skier, and among the dead was the man's brother. When his body was recovered and taken back to the family home, the funeral possession took exactly the same route as the ghostly one had that the man had witnessed. Procession. Procession? Procession? We'll go with it. Possession, no. Procession. Procession, possession, they do rhyme. They do. 
and my voice is just smidge off. Yeah. I think you all know what I mean, though, right? Don't mind Beth over here. She's she's in uh, she's in a space. We love her anyway, and the boys are keeping her company. Anyways, so we are going to move away from Scare Point. We are uh, going to uh, turn to a place that we, well, many of us at least know and love, the Deer Pubs of the uh, British countryside. In this case, yes, Wales has their fair share of pubs and their fair share of haunted pubs at that. And uh, each one of these establishments you know, regardless of whether it has a ghost story or not, they almost inevitably have a story to tell. Tonight we are going to focus on the ones that have the spirited side to their stories. And our first pint and toast to the spirit of haunted whale pubs brings us to the ancient capital city of Cardiff and the Rummer Inn. The building is believed to date to the early 18th century. Its long, narrow shape indicates that it was built on a medieval plot, and the facade is reminiscent of a Tudor-style structure. The interior had a makeover in 1888 when the old-world furnishing gave way to a metropolitan bar. Hmm. All kinds of you know, mirrors on the walls and all kinds of fancy stuff like that. Ah. Anyways, now, a rummer, you know, kind of a weird word, but it does have a point. A rummer is actually a large glass cup for wine. So you think normally wine served in, you know, wine glasses. Now we're talking like almost like a, let's say something like our, uh, our thumbs are glass here or something like that. The, yes. R-U-M-M-E-R. It's like runner, except instead of M's, use M's. And these originated in uh, Central Europe in the 16th century, and it was associated frequently with toasts, appropriately, appropriately enough. Cheers. <laughs> the rummer has a long history of serving as a point of service for more than just drinks. In 1840, the rummer tavern was named as the new starting point of the Hero Coach Service to Worcester and Birmingham. In 1835, the Bristol and Newport Steam Packets Company advertised a coach service between Cardiff and Merthyr, starting at the Rummer Tavern. Other coaches connected Cardiff to Newport, where a steamship from Bristol docked. And the ghost is said to lurk in the pub. Uh, that is said to lurk in the pub comes from its early history. Over the years, several staff and customers have reported seeing or experiencing ghostly presences at the Rummer Tavern most often in the toilets and in the cellar. Yes, haunted bathrooms. Can't get away from it. Records indicate that the spirit is most frequently encountered at the rummer that is it is likely that of a sailor who died soon after finding his wife in bed with another man. Upon returning from sea, the sailor discovered his wife was being less than faithful in their marriage house. And although it is unclear how the sailor died, some believe his heart was broken, uh, his broken heart instantly killed him, or rather distraught from the betrayal the sailor took his own life. Whatever may have brought him to his fate, the sailor has been encountered in both the toilet and the cellar, forever wandering the building where he breathed his last breath. Now moving down to the town of Denby, we find the Lindier Inn. The Linder Inn is famous for two different reasons. 
One, it is reported as having the oldest thatched roof in the UK, possibly dating back as far as 1229. That is an old thatch. Second, it is reputed, uh, reputed to be haunted, reputedly haunted by a ghost thought to be named Sylvia. Sylvia was the wife of a sailor who strangled her after finding her in the arms of another man whilst on unexpected shore leave. Sailors and their wives apparently did not have the best relationships than ye old whales. Anyways, when he discovered her and her lover, the sailor drew his blade and stabbed the man to death. He then finished his unfaithful wife off by wrapping his hands around her throat and squeezing the life out of her. Sylvia is described as an attractive woman in white, and scores of visitors have had encounters with her over the years. Her activities at the inn have earned her the nickname the Lady of Lindir. Sylvia is also known as the woman in white, though some have seen her aura as blue. But regardless of the color, it's undeniable that she is the same person since her face is often clearly seen. Many have seen Sylvia, and some have even reported her dragging the bedding off of guests who have stayed the night at the Lindir Inn. She sometimes also makes her presence known to the male patrons in an inappropriate manner. Sylvia will sometimes lewdly touch men and whisper sweet nothings in their ears. Sorry, single men. It seems that she's only after the married one. Are we not staying there? We might that might be a haunted place where we're not staying. I'm just saying. Anyways. Now of all the encounters with Sylvia, the most concerning was the attack suffered by a Raymond Kenyon in nineteen sixty while taking rooms at the Lindir. His story was reported by the Daily Post and in the interview Kenyon claimed I woke up feeling cold and my body was covered in goose pimples. Then I felt an invisible force confronting me from where the dressing table stands at the bottom of the bed and the floorboards were making loud creaking noises as if one or two persons were struggling. Then I felt a pressure like a cold hand on my throat. For reasons we can only speculate on, Kenyon braved a second night at the inn only to be assaulted once again. One presumes a second night was enough. Kenyon's experience seems to mirror the terrible death of Sylvia, Lindir's woman in white. From there, we are going to go to Wrexham and the inn known as Trevor Arms. Now, the Trevor Arms is a former coaching inn dating back to the 19th century and has had many ghostly occurrences over the years, and they appear to be the stuff of legend uh, for locals, with tales of mysterious goings-on, moving furniture, and disappearing cigarette lighters. Of the known spirits at the Trevor Arms, the first is a cavalier who was struck down during the English Civil War in an ambush as he made his way to Wrexham, and he was buried on land where the Trevor Arms is now today. However, what should have been his final rest was not to be, as his bones were dug up to lay the foundations for the Trevor Arms. His ghost is seen hiding in the shadowy corners of the pub, menacingly staring down patrons and staff alike. Another apparition is the wife of a Trevelyan Hall estate steward who died after her husband shoved her down the stairs at the Trevor Arms. She climbs up and down the stairs forever reliving, uh, reliving the moment of death. 
And perhaps the strangest feature of this haunting is a vortex that opens in room 30 where entities appear to come and go at will. Staff have reported other chilling encounters, including a mysterious boy who lingers about the inn. One staff member recounted an episode where they went back to a room behind the bar to get something when they heard a noise and could feel a presence. When they turned, they saw this boy with his head around doorway. Initially, they thought it was their son playing games, since he just so happened to be at the bar with them that evening. But when they turned to head back to the bar, the boy was nowhere to be seen, and their son was nowhere near the door. One of the 25 rooms at the pub, room 30, is thought to be up the spiritual vortex I mentioned before, and uh, the guests that do stay there complain of things going bump in the night. One man was awoken in there at 4 a.m. to what he thought was something trampling across his bed, while others have reported being told to get out. One of the spirits that calls the pub home seems to have a penchant for cigarette lighters, as many appear to go missing. During one recent Ouija board seance organized by a paranormal group, Haunts of Richmond does not endorse the use of Ouija boards. No, no. With that said, the fans. A visitor offered up a possible reason for the missing lighters when the words, I like to take things, was spelled out. Again, we can't emphasize this enough. Ouija boards equals bad juju. Don't do it. Don't mess with them. No Ouija boards. Right. Uh, that fire feels lovely. It's far too cold for the end of March, at least around here. I don't know. I guess it happens sometimes. Yeah. But got Guinness and Jameson and a fire to keep me warm, so it's all good. And some of the kitty cats seem to want to stick around here tonight. What? They're having their Zoomies, yes. So, I don't know, maybe they'll fly back through here eventually. So, we're going to move along to the town of Ambergabney and the Skeard Mountain Inn. Now, this is an ancient Welsh pub that not only inspired Shakespeare, but inspires terror in the hearts of whomever is unlucky enough to encounter its ghosts. Citing work undertaken by the uh, Glamorgan Gwent Archaeological Trust, the inn is mainly a mid-late 17th century building in construction. That said, it's likely that an inn stood on the site as far back as the early 1100s due to it being situated upon a pilgrim trail that led to Lanorthy Priory. Although there is no written documentation to prove this, most of the main bar dates from the Tudor period, and upstairs where guests stay was a courtroom until Cromwell's time. Many of the alleged ghosts are connected to that room because you did not want to be found in the same room as Crown. You do not want to be found in the same courtroom as Cromwell. Not a good place to be. So, yeah. Now, anyways, local legend has it that George Jeffries, the notorious 17th century hanging judge, may have heard cases here and that 182 people have been executed in the building. They keep a noose on the staircase hanging from a beam that was supposedly used, as it has score marks on it that are said to have been caused by the weight of hanging bodies. A popular legend is that the inn was used as a rallying point for local supporters of the Welsh Revolt against the rule of Henry IV, 
the uprising being led by Owen Glendier. He is said to have personally rallied his troops in the Cobble courtyard before raiding nearby settlements, sympathetic to the English in the 15th century. However, given that the inn wasn't built until the 17th century, this story should be taken with a pinch of salt. The inn has, based on most these unverified and undocumented stories, a reputation for being haunted by several ghosts or spirits and has been said to be the scene of numerous supernatural occurrences or paranormal activity. There are two unnerving ghosts who make frequent visits. Fanny Price was a young woman who died sometime in the 18th century. She was reported to be a barmaid who died of consumption and was buried in the local churchyard. Before Fanny makes an appearance, the overwhelming scent of lavender is smelled in the air, and they hear the rustling of her long dress on the wooden floors. Fanny appears in the upstairs room and is said to rearrange guests' jewelry after they take it off for the day. A handful of guests have caught a glimpse of Fanny in the act before she vanishes from view. A second active apparition is of a refined gentleman in a long cloak who appears in the men's room. Years ago, a little boy received the fright of his life when the ghostly gentleman appeared and for whatever reason barred his entrance to the bathroom, an act he has committed many times over the years. The pub attracts a lot of psychics and paranormal investigators, and most are welcome with open arms, at least as long as they respect the bar and its permanent residents. The bar regulars get on well with the visitors, and they love showing them around and telling them their own uncanny stories. Most of the staff have had strange occurrences, too. Glasses and customers change flying off the bar, unexplained cold spots in rooms, and one young woman who said to, uh, who said an unseen presence whispered, then roared in her ear, said not all the activity is benign. There have been more troubling manifestations. On half a dozen occasions, guests have shown uh, them strange marks that have appeared around their necks. But there's only been one instance of outright malevolence that they are aware of. A woman came running down from one of the bedrooms, hair wet and dressed only in a coat, saying, she tried to kill me. Apparently, she'd been in the bath, and something had held her down under the water. The woman fled the lodging in such a rush that the owners were never able to establish, uh, re and the owners were never able to reestablish contact with her later to get any additional information. So, if you go to there, if you go there, you just may not want to take a bath. Showers, good. Baths, I want to draw the line there. I know, Beth loves her baths. Uh, so that was the last word, pubs. We are going to uh, go and we're going to move on to a castle because, of course, how can we do a, uh, uh, a, uh, a Briton, uh, British-centric uh, uh, episode without mentioning at least one castle? So we have uh, uh, this... Uh, Carefilly Castle, Carefilly Castle, and it was constructed back sometime in the 13th century, so it's got a few years on it. Now, Carefilly Castle was a formidable symbol of power that helped its commissioner, Gilbert de Clare, establish his violent dominion over the Glatmorgan region of Wales. 
It's concentric design was the first to be found in Britain, and the expansive aquatic defenses around the perimeter are entirely man-made. Carapilly Castle holds claim to the prestigious title of being the biggest castle in Wales. It also holds a terrifying bat-like creature, which is known as a guar-e-reben. Guar-e-reben. I don't Sorry, we're going to go with that. Now, uh, now this creature, the Gretchen Raven, and the tragic and lonely spirit that is the remnant of Lady Alice de la Marche. These two lurking spirits are similar in the regard that they will strike fear into anyone who sets eye upon them, however different from each other as one seeks to brutally dismember and devour anyone it encounters, whereas Alice de la Marche, the wailing spirit, simply skulks in internal gloom. Now, the Welsh have a saying for anyone who wants to be rude about a woman. Ye marmar, slaw e grararibbon. I need more to drink? Maybe. Maybe. Anyways, it translates to, <laughs> she's so ugly, she's the ribbon witch. The hideous guarari ribbon was said to appear as a harbinger of doom. With uncuffed hair, wizened arms, blackened teeth, and leathery wings, she would hover outside the window of the person about to die, calling them by name. Now that nobody has lived in the castle in several centuries, she seems lonely, having been reportedly wandering the grounds, exclaiming, Fin Plantin, Fin Plantin, or My Child, My Child. Many Carefilly residents have been known routinely to exclaim much the same. This aspect, this aspect of the thief is similar to an Irish banshee. However, the similarities end when you are aware that the Guari Ribbon do not only predict deaths as they also take lives. You must be wary at Carefilly Castle, for if you let your guard down, this flying demon could glide down at any second and tear open your throat letting all that bloody and gory goodness fly out of you and into its mouth. Cheers. Mm. There's lots of monsters that eat flesh and whatnot. Of course, yeah, vampires are certainly like the most famous ones, but anyways. Yeah, I don't know if you can hear her over here. She she sounds like uh She's been smoking cigars all weekend and uh, drinking whiskey. And uh, she thinks that she's looking a little rough, which is why she just wants to be off camera tonight. She's always beautiful. <laughs> oh, anyways, we will move on to the second mass, uh, supernatural entity that we mentioned before. Uh, the trapped and tragic specter of Alice de la Marche, an ill-fated and tormented woman who continues life as a wailing and tortured ghost. The founder of Carapilly Castle, Gerbos de la Clare, was married to the beautiful Princess Alice of uh, Angulum, a lady of refined tastes and passionate nature, who, became, who came to resent her husband's warring disposition. One day, Gufrid the Fair, Prince of Brithir, paid a visit to the castle. 
Alice became enamored with this handsome and amorous Welsh prince, and soon the two were lovers. Rather foolishly, Gufrid confessed their secret to a monk who turned out to be duplicitous and informed the couple's husband. A deranged Gilbert sent his wife back to France and ordered his men to find Gulfred. Now, learning of the friar's betrayal, Gulfred caught the monk and hanged him from a tree at a site now known as Monk's Vale in commemoration. No sooner than he done so, however, than Gilbert's men caught up with Gulfred, and Gulfred, too, was soon dangling at the end of a noose. Gleefully, the avenged husband sent a messenger to France to inform Alice of her lover's execution. Such was the shock of the news that she dropped dead on the spot, and her ghost has haunted the ramparts of Carapilla Castle ever since. Resplendent in a richly woven dress, colored green for Gilbert's envy, she waits in silent solitude, desperate to be reunited with her princely lover, whose flattering attentions fate has long been denied to her. Her wraith returns to Carapilla Castle and gains some prenatural uh, preternatural gifts. Upon death, she develops an affinity with the ivy at Carapilla and can shift to it, travel through it at great speed, and will often um, often offer her hand to be shook passers-by that she likes. Her presence has made ivy grow at rampant rates around the castle, so it might be said she has eyes everywhere. These malevolent presences make Carapilla Castle a location that will chill you to the bone and set creeping fear trickling down your neck. Anyone that sets foot in this murderous location is either as foolish as as a jester or as brave as a warrior. Either way, you will be in for a spooky time. And we do have another castle that we're going to go on about. And uh, this one is situated along the Welsh north coast in the market town of uh, Ambergale, uh, and it's uh, called Weirich Castle, a Gothic masterpiece that has stood silent and empty since the 1980s. Weirich Castle may be appropriately, um, uh, uh, maybe more appropriately known as actually like a manor house, uh, and it looks very well suited to be in the backdrop for Spirited Tales or the Bloodthirsty Undead. Unlike the ancient castles that dot the Welsh countryside. Weirich Castle is a relative newcomer. Construction of the castle began in 1810 and was overseen by Lloyd Hesketh Bramford, heir to the Lord of Weirich. The ancestral home of the powerful family sat there for generations, and Bamford added onto it, making it into the sprawling castle we see today. When the Bamford Hesketh heiress, Countess Winifred Mary, uh, married, the castle transferred into the possession of the Earls of Dundonald. Uh, this is when the history of the castle became truly fascinating. As the Second World War raged across Europe, the castle was taken over as part of Operation Kinder Transport. The Kinder Transport was a little-known operation by the British government that rescued over 10,000 Jewish children from Nazi-occupied countries. The castle itself housed over 200 of these refugees until Hitler and his regime of oppression was defeated. Following the horrors of the worldwide conflict, the castle was purchased in 1948 by Leslie Sultz. 
For 20 years, the castle became a popular tourist attraction, became known as the Showplace of Wales. When Salt sold the castle in 1968, it was used as a center for medieval entertainment. Audiences could, thr- uh, could thrill to authentic jousting tournaments while enjoying a hearty banquet meal. All that changed in the mid all of that changed in the mid 1980s when the entertainment ended. The castle was bought by an American firm that wanted to turn it into a hotel, but sadly the deal fell through and the castle fell into disrepair. As well as being a target for heavy vandalism, today the castle has um, uh, today the castle has managed to experience some sort of renewed hope. The Geerich Castle Preservation Trust was formed to protect the castle for the benefit of the Welsh people. It was at this time the haunting of the castle became evident to both the trust and the people of Northern Wales. Countess Winifred, the heiress that lived in the castle for many years, is believed to be the ghost that haunts the space. In life, Countess Winifred was known as a person who loved her home and was blessed with a sense of compassion for her fellow man. She exercised that compassion by investing large amounts of her personal wealth in hospitals, the arts, and religious organizations. It's believed this could be why her ghost continues to wander the castle long after her death. Though Gerrit's castle is beautiful to behold, its most stunning feature is the marble staircase. It is here where the majority of encounters with the ghost of Countess Winifred is said to occur. Since her death many decades ago, an eerie ball of light has been witnessed on the marble staircase. As people watch the ball, uh, uh, as people watch the ball begin to take shape and take form of a woman believed to be the Countess herself, others have reported hearing soft footfalls moving up and down the stairs, as well as the creepy feeling of being watched by an unknown, unseen person. In the early days of the Preservation Society, a manager had an unnerving experience on the main terrace he would never forget. While waiting in darkness for an electrician to arrive, he would hear what sounded like chains on the gate rattling almost as if someone were trying to get in. As he peered into the inky blackness, he could hear the unmistakable sound of footsteps swiftly approaching him. When the footsteps came to an abrupt stop directly in front of him, the man turned on his torch to see whether or not the electrician was standing before him. And uh, lo and behold, turns out he was certainly quite alone there in the space. He made haste to uh, head on out of there himself. If you hear some bumping in the background, the boys are having a battle royale behind the camera, so you'll have to excuse them. The thump, the thump. Boys? No. Oh, God. Okay, that was close. Camera nearly took a flight. Uh, All right. Now we are going to move back to the the, uh, the major city. Uh, Nico, leave your sister alone. Uh, we're going to move back to one of the uh, most major cities in Wales, and that is Cardiff. And uh, we're going to specifically go to its most notable landmark, Cardiff Castle, which has a history that Spain spans all the way back to 55 A.D when the first Roman occupation of South Wales began. A fort was built on the site to serve as a naval base until the early 5th century, protecting the Roman Empire. 
In 1093, the Normans erected a castle with a mound which stood at 40 feet high surrounded by a moat. It was then to go on and live through generations of honorable families and has seen many lives and deaths. Many noble families lived here, such as the Declares, the Tudors, and the Buttes. Today it stands as a site of international significance, and legend has it that many of its previous occupants still roam the opulent rooms in castle grounds. Cardi's castle itself is an incredible example of a neo-Gothic architecture thanks to the third Marquis de Butte, who rumored, uh, was rumored to be the wealthiest man in the world at the time as he transferred to the castle with architect William Burgess over the course of 16 years. They used the finest Welsh, uh, Welsh craftsmen to create Gothic towers, murals, stained glass, uh, you know, marble everywhere, and they had elaborate wood carvings uh, that were installed as well. This castle became part of the great Gothic revival of the Victorian era. And is it any wonder that the ghosts of these walls don't want to leave their magnificent home? Said to haunt the gateway to Cardiff Castle, the phantom coach has been seen manifesting by many people. In a newspaper article in 1956, a man named David Brecon said, Passing the walls of Cardiff Castle on a frosty night, I heard a faint jingle of harness, the clatter of a horse's hooves the sound of bells and an Irish coachman cry from the direction of Canton Bridge. A second later, a coach and four horses passed me at a steady trot, swung left-handed through the castle gate doors, and all was gone from view. Mr. Brecon discovered that in November 1886, a man named Boyle had a similar experience. As he sat in the castle library one day, he heard a coach and horses arrive, only to be informed by the butler that no such coach had come. The sightings had been said to herald an impending death, as some see it, that some see it have experienced a family, be family bereavement shortly thereafter. Now, the second Marquis of Butte was John Creighton Stewart, a wealthy aristocrat who developed coal and iron industries across Wales and built Cardiff docks. His family owned Cardiff Castle for over six generations, and he passed away in 1848 suddenly after a banquet while in his dressing room, which was a small chamber behind the library. This area afterward was converted into a chapel. His bust stands on the spot where he died which helped the custodian that saw his ghost recognize him instantly. He is said to appear wearing a red coat and to walk through the fireplace and through the six-foot-thick wall. Then, however, we do move to some of the lady ghosts of Cardiff Castle, and there are quite a few. Now, there's one that is a mysterious woman who does remain an unknown figure that is seen silently gliding past the castle in a long gray dress and on the bridge over the river Taff, where she stops and waves or signals in the direction of the castle. Her face is looking at one of, one of the towers. She has been seen in daylight, but more often she is seen at dusk. Then there's another ghostly female figure that has been said to haunt storerooms, rearranging objects, and, other, um, and another faceless woman in a flowing gray skirt is spotted around Cardiff Castle building. A familiar name that visiting psychics have picked up on that is that of Sarah. So 
This is just a uh, guess as to who exactly the therapist can be, but it's the name that has been assigned to her. Then there is one who they are pretty sure they know exactly who it is, and that is actually the second wife of the second Marquis de Butte, um, who is Lady Sophia. And she is rumored to haunt the grounds. She was said to be an obsessive and difficult woman to please and did not get on well with her husband's family. He was buried, um, he was buried with his first wife, Maria, after his death. So apparently, uh, yeah, held on to that old claim just a little longer. Now, apparently a custodian of Cardiff Castle, a Mr. Edwards, took up the post of custodian in the footsteps of his father-in-law, Mr. Edgar Don, who looked after the interests of Cardiff Castle for more than 40 years. It was claimed that several odd things happened to both him and his family since he came to live there. He recounted that one night, about 12 o'clock, he went upstairs with a friend to show him the banqueting hall. Their wives were downstairs when suddenly they heard footsteps in the passage. They thought they were playing, uh, that their wives were playing a practical joke on them, so to teach them a lesson, they switched the lights off. When nothing happened and the footsteps ceased, they went back downstairs. Both of their wives swore that they had not left the sitting room. They searched the upstairs apartments, but found absolutely nobody up there with them. Sometimes the family at Cardiff Castle experienced what they called bad nights, nights when Yvonne, Mr. Edwards' wife, his four children, or himself could not get any sleep. Mr. Edwards said they all experienced an eerie feeling that is difficult to describe, but it feels as though a wet blanket was cloaking them. <clears throat> now, uh, Mr. We uh, Mr. Edwards' dog sometimes refused to enter the banqueting hall or the castle's library on some nights when accompanying uh, Mr. Edwards. Several times the dog would refuse to go into the library, and he would start shaking at the room entrance with his back up and his fur standing on end, looking completely terrified. Asked whether he had ever seen the ghost himself, Mr. Edwards replied, I have never seen what could be described as a ghost but I have seen shadowy forms. One night, my wife and I were in the guest room. I wasn't asleep and suddenly noticed a form by the bed. I thought it was one of the children who had perhaps come to us because they were feeling unwell. I looked up and saw a gray form. It had no clear features, and before my eyes, it seemed to dissolve slowly into the air. They never know when that sort of thing is going to happen and certainly did not worry about it too much either. As he said, I suppose it comes with the job. Around 3.45 a.m. precisely each morning in the main dining room, the doors would open and close by themselves, even if these heavy doors are locked. The same place also experiences lights flickering and furniture being rearranged. Finally, we have what is known as the Giant of Cardiff Castle a three-meter-tall giant that has been reported to walk around the grounds. Wales has its own folklore stories of giant humans in many regions, and it is possible that this is one story that was circulated to terrify any would-be trespassers. Perfect timing? That does bring us to a close for this evening, at least our last story. Hope you enjoyed. I'm going to uh, enjoy the rest of my beverage. And, uh, ah, ooh, 
few weeks from now, we will be back, hopefully both of us on camera, hopefully Beth having a voice, um, because after this, I'm not sure that I'm going to have a voice tomorrow. But whatever, it's cool. I had fun. I hope you did too. And two weeks, haunted distilleries. Yes, we have a whole episode dedicated to haunted distilleries. I'm looking forward to that. Two episodes. Part one, volume one, will be in two weeks. And I know we got a lot of other stuff coming up, too. As soon as we got back from GalaxyCon the other week, Beth started diving in and has, uh, started uh, churning out uh, scripts for haunted amusement parks. So uh, I think that we got enough for maybe three episodes going there, at least two going on three or something like that. So haunted amusement parks will be in the near future as well. So we got your booze, we got your amusement parks, we got all kinds of good stuff coming up. Um, and speaking of stuff that is coming up, aside from just uh, our uh, you know our Facebook live shows, um, yeah, our tours are basically going full swing. Um, you know, we're uh, now we're running Friday through Sunday, and uh, as uh, in the next couple of months, by the time we get to June, we're going to be doing tours Wednesday through Sunday. So. You can go ahead and check out what we got coming up on our schedule at hauntsofrichmond.com. And, uh, oh, what else? Oh, of course, we still have um, the um, Haunts of Key West trip coming up. The, uh, the clock's ticking on that. We're, what, like T-minus nine months, roughly? So that'll be here before we know it. Would love to have some of you be able to come on out and join us. I know uh, there were some people that we met at the uh, – Irish Festival this weekend that we're really psyched about the trip, and we hope that they will join us, and we hope that some of you will as well. It is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, if you have any questions about that, by all means, feel free to reach out and uh, ask us about it. And for that matter, if you have any questions about anything at all, we'd love to chat with you all. So feel free to drop us a note anytime, and uh, we will go ahead and we'll follow up and, uh, you know, we you know, have some uh, paranormal fun and whatnot. Um, one other thing, uh, if you want to go ahead and tell some of your friends that are not on Facebook, uh, I have gone ahead and I have started transferring some of these episodes, these archived episodes, over to YouTube. So we do have a YouTube channel that has started. I got like uh, four episodes that I've managed to get uploaded to there already. But um, these videos, since they are a little lengthy, that is quite the time-consuming process to download them from Facebook, upload them to YouTube, and then make any notes that are necessary. So that is a uh, work in progress, and it's going to be evolving over the days and weeks ahead. So, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and check that out. It should be fairly easy to find. Go to YouTube and look up Haunts of Richmond, and we should pop up somewhere in there pretty easily. Um, other than that, uh, any questions? Any lingering questions? Okay, cool. Oh, of course. Everybody loves the kitty cats. Yeah, I love the kitty cats. So, with that, we will bid you adieu for this evening, and uh, we will hope to see you in uh, at least in a couple of weeks, and uh, uh, if not sooner. So, with that, cheers, everybody. Have a good night.